This week's podcast treasure is The Trail Went Cold, hosted by Robin Warder. The Trail Went Cold is a true crime podcast where writer Robin Warder examines unsolved mysteries and offers his own theories as to what really happened. Robin Warder is an aspiring screenwriter who also loves to write about unsolved mysteries and true crime. He's published over 100 articles for both Cracked and Listverse, and many of the cases he's covered in those articles will be analyzed on The Trail Went Cold. You can also friend him up on Twitter at Robin underscore Warder. Ecuador, 1887. Deep in the beautiful, ecologically rich nation of Ecuador is the Yanganates National Park. The Yanganates is acres and acres of dense forest and towering mountains, with altitudes that go up to 8,500 feet above sea level into perennial torrential storms and unearthly humidity. The peaks of the Yanganates, formed from volcanoes, frequently disappear into a shroud of impenetrable fog, and above the clouds, snow and sleet make travel among the ranges virtually impossible. The locals have good reason to avoid the ranges and the valleys, reasons that are practical as well as superstitious. The late 1800s was a period of widespread British colonialism, under the altruistic guise of discovery and expansion. South America, which had long since been colonized by the Spanish, was not exempt from imperial scrutiny and exploration. In the 1850s, an English botanist named Richard Spruce, talk about self-fulfilling prophecy with that last name, right? Traveled to Ecuador under an ostensibly noble pursuit, the hunt for the bark of the cinchona tree. Extract from cinchona is a major component in the anti-malarial drug quinine, and considering the regions and countries that most British explorers and soldiers were venturing into those days, malaria, carried by mosquitoes, was a major threat. But while Spruce was collecting cinchona bark, he came into the possession of a somewhat more intriguing specimen. It was a map, and a document reportedly written by a gentleman named Valverde, who had lived some hundred years prior. And that map, Spruce claimed, was said to lead to an unfathomable treasure. Known as Valverde's Derrotero, I can't roll my R's, Derrotero is called Derrotero, or Valverde's Path, the journal details how Valverde, a Spanish soldier who had lived at the end of the 1500s, married the daughter of a local village priest. The princess was one of the descendants of the Inca, and even though her husband's people had essentially destroyed her people's empire, she took pity on his poverty and convinced her father to help him out. According to the legend, the priest led Valverde to a hidden stockpile of Incan gold artifacts, which Valverde was able to pawn off to the Spanish, and which gave him and his wife a very comfortable life, to say the least. Oh, and the most important part of this story? He didn't sell all of it. Very little, it turns out, goes a long way. Eventually, Valverde returned to his homeland of Spain, and on his deathbed, he wrote down the directions and instructions leading to the whereabouts of his inherited wealth. He bequeathed this guide to Charles V, King of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. The king, upon realizing the surplus of wealth that was just ripe for the taking back in the colonies, made limited copies of the Derrotero and sent them to the leaders of the colonies there. But as Richard Spruce looked into the matter, he discovered that terrible and inexplicable fates followed those who went into the jungle looking for the treasure. This may be why the botanist wisely chose to avoid the temptation to go looking for it himself, 
but he ended up publishing his accounts in the jungle, along with Valverde's notes, in the Journal of the Royal Geographical Society in 1860. Only a few years later, Spruce's own nephew, a sailor in the Royal British Navy, would bring up the subject of the lost gold to his buddies, a Canadian lieutenant by the name of George Chapman and his ship captain, Barth Blake. With nothing better to do with their lives, apparently, the two men set a course for Ecuador in 1887, on a schooner departing from Nova Scotia. The first sign that this adventure was doomed from the start was when said boat was shipwrecked near Guayaquil, Ecuador's largest city. While repairs were being made, the intrepid treasure hunters, Blake and Chapman, went into the Yanganates region by themselves. We will never know for sure what happened next, but the next time someone emerged from the Yanganates, it was Blake, alone. Whatever happened up in the mountains, his companion, George Chapman, vanished into the bush. Other sources say that he died for reasons unknown, and Blake, unable to carry a body back to civilization, decided to bury him on the trail. And to raise even more eyebrows, Blake claimed his hunt was fruitful. He'd found the treasure. Blake's next plan of action was to return to North America and assemble a proper expedition to return and haul the treasure out of the mountains. When the schooner docked in Panama, Blake gleefully sent a memo to Spruce, and in this note, Blake detailed the enormity of the find, illustrating just how much value we're dealing with here. He says, It is impossible for me to describe the wealth that now lays in that cave marked on my map, but I could not remove it alone, nor thousands of men. There are thousands of gold and silver pieces of Inca and pre-Inca handicraft, the most beautiful goldsmith works you are not able to imagine. Life-size human figures made out of beaten gold and silver, birds, animals, cornstalks, gold and silver flowers, pots full of the most incredible jewelry, golden vases full of emeralds. Setting sail for New York, Blake's shipmates began to grow concerned over the captain's behavior. There are two accounts of what happened next. Most say that one moment Blake was standing by the deck, perhaps gazing off into the distance, when he suddenly fell overboard and was never retrieved. Still others say he was pushed. Before Blake was taken into the sea, he had made sure that his findings would fall into the hands of a trusted ally, a Bostonian sea captain named Albertson. Albertson received not one, but two different maps, and more importantly, a quickly scrawled note. It seemed like Blake was acutely aware of the danger he was in from the moment he laid eyes on the treasure. If something should happen to me, look for the reclining woman. And then he mentioned a cave above a lake. What was it that Blake had been so afraid about? Knowledge that he might be betrayed? Repercussions over his companion's suspicious death? Or was Blake the latest of many victims in an unforgiving curse? Each and every legend has the potential to become a ghost story. All that separates a narrative or a history from the realm of the supernatural is a tragic death. And to understand the curse of the Yanganates, you need to go back to the one unfortunate soul who begot it. 
It was the early 1500s, and while the Western world was embarking on a vicious conquest to expand their territories, a far older empire was dealing with the unexpected demise of both their current ruler and his intended heir. When King Huayanacapac and his son passed away, the empire was soon divided between his surviving sons. Atahualpa ruled the northern portion in Quito, while Hascar presided over the south, from the capital of Cusco, which is in modern-day Peru. Though there was tension between the two sides, it had yet to erupt into a full-blown civil war. Give it a minute. In November of 1521, the conquistador Francisco Pizarro, a great admirer and cousin of Hernán Cortés, sailed to the Incan Empire with 160 fellow conquistadors in tow. His objective, obviously, was the forceful acquisition of wealth. Pizarro's first two expeditions into the continent were met with failure. The Spanish were ill-equipped to deal with the climate, terrain, and native populace. But when the conquistador discovered that the Inca were at each other's throats, Pizarro got an idea. Divide and conquer. A third expedition was approved by the King of Spain, who, in return for Incan gold, would allow Pizarro to become the sole ruler of these new lands. In 1532, the feud between the North and South boiled into a full-blown civil war, and Francisco Pizarro was quick to take sides. He aligned himself with Huascar and gave his kingdom troops. In return, Pizarro would receive gold and support. All he had to do was get rid of that pesky king in the North. Unfortunately, it didn't work out so well for Hascar, who was defeated in battle. But to Pizarro, this situation proved fortuitous, because he had gained a foothold in the Incan Empire and had support of some of their people. Pizarro and his army marched toward the Incan city of Cajamarca, loyal to Atahualpa, and they set up camp there. The Incan king was curious about these invaders and their advanced weaponry, which could probably be used to quell any further rebellions. He deployed an envoy to the Spaniards, who played dumb and non-threatening. And this played into Atahualpa's weakness. He was arrogant, having taken already his people's empire by force and crushed his would-be usurper. What were a few white men to his 80,000 warriors? After the king's ambassadors returned, Atahualpa agreed to meet with the Spanish leader. The king's intention, of course, was to destroy and capture the foreigner and steal his technology, and the fool wouldn't see it coming. When Atahualpa and his army of 6,000 soldiers arrived, he found Cajamarca suspiciously deserted, but in some ways this was to be expected. A war had just taken place and scattered many denizens of the Incan cities. Atahualpa and his entourage entered the innermost part of the city and came upon a small camp. There they were greeted by a monk, Vincente Valverde, who tried to approach the king and convert him to Catholicism. He handed him a rosary, which the king immediately threw to the ground in disgust and anger, demanding to know why the leader of the Spaniards was not present. Then he got his answer. Atahualpa and his men were beset upon by Spanish soldiers lying in wait from strategic positions. You see, Pizarro had laid a trap, and with cannons and rifles at his disposal, the army of the Inca were no match. Those Inca who did not die on the streets fled for their lives, and at the end of it all, Pizarro had captured their king. Knowing he was now in deep trouble and pissed off about it too, Atahualpa offered up a king's ransom. If Pizarro returned him to his people alive, Atahualpa would leave him a room full of gold, 24 feet long by 18 feet wide. 
and double that much in silver. If Pizarro hadn't already come across massive amounts of gold and precious metals throughout his conquest, he might have balked at the idea, or even dismissed it outright. But he was immediately swayed, and so the pendulum swung back in Atahualpa's favor. Soon, all classes of Inca, the empire over, sent their gold and silver objects to a centralized storeroom in Quito, where Pizarro had located his stronghold. Pizarro was surprised at the willingness of Atahualpa's people to give up their own material wealth for the sake of their king's ensured safety and release, and he was struck by the respect Atahualpa commanded over his people, and he feared this power too. After all, who's to say the king wouldn't turn around and rally the troops once he was released? At this point, Pizarro had already gotten what he wanted, so he decided to just kill the king and disband the seat of Incan power. Pizarro's compatriots, including his own brother, tried to convince him that this would be a bad idea, and could even put them in more danger than what was already present. But Pizarro refused. He charged Atahualpa with attempting to murder Huascar, who Pizarro had aligned with, remember. Atahualpa was tried in a kangaroo court, guilty of treason, and was sentenced to be burned alive at the stake. For Atahualpa, this was not ideal, partially because, you know, death, but also because, according to Incan belief, immolation prevented the soul from crossing over into the afterlife. Vincente Valverde, the Spanish monk, presented Atahualpa instead with the promise of imprisonment, or exile, instead of execution. Only if, however, the king would convert to Catholicism. Atahualpa reluctantly agreed. And shortly after baptism, Pizarro twiddled his mustache and told the king that his only reward would be to get to choose how to die instead. Atahualpa chose to be garroted, or strangled, but not before embedding his anger and vengeance upon all that gold the Spanish coveted. And the Spanish wouldn't even get a chance to make off with it. As soon as Atahualpa was executed, and with all attention turned towards that business, Atahualpa's trusted general, Romanafui acted fast. He ordered the remaining 750 tons of gold and silver that was still in transport to be secreted away. The Incans then exhumed Atahualpa's freshly buried corpse, mummified him according to custom, and sent his remains to be hidden along with the treasure. But Romanafui wasn't just a general, he was also the pettiest Inca. Romanafui called for his servants to bring forward an enormous pile of maize. From this giant pile of grain, Ramanafai took one single kernel and held it up to Pizarro. This, he said, represented the amount of gold that the Spanish would walk away with. And the pile? Well, that's what they could never hope to find. When the Spanish found out that they had been duped, Pizarro captured Ramanafai and put him to torture in an attempt to force the general to disclose the location of the treasure. And Ramanafai was silent up until the end. Just before he died with a smile on his lips, the general warned that anybody foolhardy enough to try and uncover the treasure would be cursed with madness or death, specifically for being impaled through the heart. With Pizarro's hands cleansed of the troublesome Incan rulers, he and his second-in-command, Diego de Almagro, descended upon what little treasure remained, which was, of course, still a lot, and they began to divide it between them. Curiously, history shows us that shortly after they laid hands on this gold is when their bitter rivalry commenced. Up until that point, King Charles I of Spain had supported Pizarro, 
but after finding out he had impulsively killed the Incan ruler, he deemed Pizarro of poor character and judgment. Despite this, Pizarro managed to weasel more fortune and territory for his services than Almagro, which irked his fellow conquistador to no end. In a very short time, history repeated itself. Soon the conquered lands of the former Incan Empire were divided between Pizarro with Nueva Castilla and Almagro with Nueva Toledo, and the feud escalated until Pizarro finally sent his troops to capture and kill Almagro. The manner of execution? Garotting, of course. But vengeance begets vengeance, as they say. And finally, on one evening, on the 26th of June, 1541, a group of 20 Almagro supporters, led by his son, de Almagro II, stormed Pizarro's fortress. Most there fled in terror, and those who did not, even the guards, were quickly dispatched. The mob made its way to Francisco Pizarro's bedchamber, dragged the sleeping seven-year-old out of bed, and then impaled him, first through the throat, and then right through the heart. For this, it is believed that the first two victims of Atahualpa's treasure were those who initially split it amongst themselves and then, consumed by greed and ambition, killed each other over it. But what of the priest, Valverde, who had tried twice to spare King Atahualpa a violent death? Well, he wanted to become the first bishop of Spanish-conquered Cusco, where he founded their Catholic monastery. Almost half a century after his death is when we first hear the story of a soldier named Valverde discovering the gold. Were the two related? Well, it would certainly lend a spooky element of predestination to the tale. But we can't know for certain, and as we'll hear later, the truth is highly disputable. According to the tale of Valverde, the soldier, that is, King Charles of Spain received his information leading to the whereabouts of the hidden treasure, and then deployed the guide to the city leaders under his command back in the New World. One of these leaders was a priest named Father Longo, who supposedly went out and actually found the treasure. And as with many facets to this tale, there are multiple possible fates for Father Longo. One account states that while the monk was able to confirm the location of Atahualpa's gold, he mysteriously vanished shortly after. Another story paints a more noble and happier end to the Padre. However, full disclosure, this account may be related to an unnamed bishop and not Longo. But for the sake of this podcast and, hey, a better story, we'll name them as the same person. In this outcome, Father Longo realizes how much ruin befell the natives and Spanish alike when Pizarro stormed into town back then, so the priest decides to send his information back to the Vatican to keep it safe. He then may have gone into hiding somewhere, perhaps with a little gold to buy him a comfortable new life tending to his flock, far from the clutches of the money-hungry Spaniards. During the next 100 years, the treasure of the Yanganates passed into legend, but its dark reputation began in earnest with a local miner named Atanasio Guzman. By the 1700s, the gold fever of the conquistadors had finally died down, but there was still plenty of fortune to be gleaned from the mines once used by the Inca. Reportedly, Guzman found something a lot better than a small vein of gold. He had stumbled upon the treasure of Atahualpa. Guzman created a map that would lead him back to the site, but, much like Father Longo, he too mysteriously vanished into the mountains. Though his map was eventually discovered, his body was never found. 
Over the course of the following century, the stories of the treasure began to gather weight, but were unknown to the outside world until the botanist Richard Spruce discovered Guzman's map and Valverde's journals in the archives of the nearby city of La Dacunga. Then we of course know, or rather don't know, what happened to Blake and Chapman. But this didn't deter adventurers and would-be treasure hunters, who all thought that they would be the ones to discover the treasure of the Yanganates, without being eaten by skeletal Incan warrior ghosts, or what have you. In the early part of the 1900s, a dubious account mentioned a wealthy American banker named only as Colonel Brooks, who allegedly came to the Yanganate range with his wife for a romantic getaway. They journeyed into the jungle in search of the wealth, only to get caught in the cold torrential downpours. Mrs. Brooks, turns out, was the lucky one. She caught pneumonia and died. As for her husband, he ended up being committed to an insane asylum. There's not much evidence to support these two characters ever actually existing. Besides, the incidents surrounding those who go looking for the treasure do not really need any embellishments. The fact, in this story, is oftentimes more frightening than fiction. Erskine Locke was most definitely real, but he was larger than life. An intrepid Scotsman and adventurer, Erskine was one of the first non-native explorers of the Yanganates to pen a written account of his quest for the treasure, which he titled Fever, Famine, and Gold. One of those does-what-it-says-on-the-box kinds of stories, because Locke's two expeditions in the 1930s were unmitigated disasters. Every day, Erskine and his team faced unrelenting rain and mud. I don't need to mention again that the Yanganates range has a notoriously hellish climate. The team thought they were prepared, but they were not. Erskine and his companions ran out of provisions, and they fell ill with fevers that were so intense it caused them to hallucinate. Erskine did go on to complete his book, without finding the treasure, and then shortly after the book was released, he shot himself. So not only was this curse fatal, but it was also, in a way, self-perpetuating. It seemed that each time someone went looking for the treasure, they managed to live just long enough to leave behind a record or a document that only served to draw others in. But this didn't stop one explorer, who made it his life's mission to uncover the treasure, but more importantly, conserve the Yanganates region. In 1937, a young Andres Fernandez Salvador read about the treasure in the LA Examiner, and in the 1950s, he decided to venture off to Ecuador in search of lost gold. By now, most of those living in and around the region were highly superstitious over the treasure and the curse. It was believed that the treasure itself was guarded by the vengeful ghosts of the Inca, or even a kind of demonic dwarf called a duende, which are often known in Latin American folklore to protect treasures. When Andres arrived, he found that the locals were even terrified to speak the name Yanganates aloud, lest they become the latest victim of its curse. And they told Andres that those who went into the forest by themselves too often failed to return. On one of Andres Salvador's earlier expeditions, he and a team of Ecuadorian Indians were high in the mountains when they needed to cross a chasm, which they did not by bridge or ladder or, you know, insane practical methods, but by leaping across it. Not exactly how I would approach a giant gaping maw a thousand feet above the jungle, but hey, I'm not an explorer, so what do I know? Anyways, Andres was able to clear the rift, 
but when one of his companions tried to make the jump, he fell just short of the edge. Salvador was able to grab onto the man, dangling off the precipice, but the gentleman wouldn't let go of him or even try to hoist himself up. At that point, he looked up into Salvador's eyes with a blank expression and whispered, Come with me. Come with me. We both die. In Andre Salvador's own words, just as we were about to slip over the edge together, I had to push him off. He wanted to die. This was not the only occasion when the curse almost claimed Andre Salvador. He would eventually go on to survive a helicopter crash that left him stranded until he was rescued by the military and extracted from the jungle. And believe it or not, he kept on going back. My research on Salvador ends just short of a few years before this recording date in 2017, but presuming he's still alive and spry in his early 90s, Andre Salvador remains a man of many accomplishments. He helped lead an expedition with a journalist, Malik Kalin, in 1998, and a bulk of my notes on the subject come from this article, in fact. Salvador has a black belt in judo, stopped short of breaking the world record on the 100-meter dash, is a renowned treasure hunter and conservationist, and owns a massive cattle ranch. He believes he's been spared from the curse simply by choosing not to believe in it, which makes sense. Take away belief, take away the power. But Salvador may have another thing going for him that has earned him the protection of the jungle spirits. It was his family who helped get the Yanganates certified as a national park and conservation site. Andre Salvador was also acquainted with one of the last documented victims of Atahualpa's treasure. In 1992, Bob Holt, a geologist from Arizona, had come down to Ecuador to try and seek out the gold. Salvador himself had sponsored many of Holt's other expeditions further into the Amazon region of South America, which should clue you in. Bob Holt wasn't exactly new to the jungle. He knew how to navigate the terrain and prepare. And yet, Holt's tragic end came when he was simply walking along a trail. It was reported that he tripped over a root and fell onto a jagged branch extending from a log. It impaled him, you guessed it, straight through the heart. Before we get into evidence, it's time to do some debunking and course correction. And it all starts with Richard Spruce, the gentleman who helped popularize the treasure. Researchers have discovered that a real soldier named Valverde may have been a fabrication. Same with this so-called derrotero. Now, Vincente Valverde, the priest involved in Atahualpa's capture, definitely existed. He was a highly controversial figure, and his name may have inspired Spruce. Furthermore, there are some skeptics who take exception with General Ramanafai's orders to hide away the Incan gold. In a 1615 chronicle of Inca history, there is no mention of a massive surplus of gold being sent to the capital. Then there's the inconsistencies in the maps and documents created by those who died trying to make a profit off of the gold. In Valverde's guide, a strange omission has been found in what are normally very detailed chronological directions. Namely, all of these details are very specific, to the point that modern adventurers are able to sync up Valverde's guide with the landscape. But then, towards the end of the document, we suddenly go from a four-day's walk of noting major geological landmarks 
to another week in a completely different direction. Andre Salvador theorizes that the priests in Latacunga may have altered the guide after Father Longo vanished. But as with almost everything about this treasure, this is inconclusive. Going on the assumption that Valverde's guide is authentic, it's hard to follow a 500-year-old document written by a dying man who had most likely put pen to paper decades after discovering the treasure. Combine this with an ever-changing geography, and you can see why nobody has found the treasure yet. But all reports suggest that the treasure is sequestered in a hidden grove or depression filled with water, which may be a lake near a cave. The other known mount to the treasure was created by Captain Bark Blake before he, quite literally, went overboard, but Blake's paranoia may have led him to create two entirely different sets of maps to throw schemers off the trail, so these sources become a point of contention as well. Now, despite all of these contradictory documents, there is enough evidence and historical eyewitness testimony out there to support the existence of a supply of gold hiding out somewhere in the mountains. We just have to find it. But how close are we? In 2004, the writer Mark Honigsbaum mounted a documented expedition and heard first-hand accounts of others coming upon the Yanganate's treasure, which was said to be, sure enough, at the bottom of a small lake or pond. When Honigsbaum was unable to rediscover the location, he surmised that it may have been buried or disturbed by the frequent earthquakes in the geologically active region. Honigsbaum, who, as of this writing, has not died under mysterious circumstances, states that the gold has either already been found by unknown locals and adventurers and been chipped away at over time or overgrowth and rough terrain have simply covered it up over the years. In 2013, there was a bit of an archaeological breakthrough on this case, by way of a joint British-American expedition. Two archaeologists, Bruce Fenton and Benoit Duvernoy, managed to uncover a man-made stone structure in the middle of the Yanganathis forest. The structure included a wall that sloped upwards with a flat, altar-like surface. More morbid, but also totally on brand with this story, they hypothesized that the structure may have been used for human sacrifices, with the slope created in order to let the head of the sacrificial victim roll down into some sort of head depository. The other theory is that this structure is a pyramid, or more accurately, a mausoleum. Atahualpa's final resting place. Or it could just be an unusual but perfectly natural rock formation, or even the ruins of another civilization that lived in the area, that of perhaps the Kanyari people. There are other buried mounds around the unearthed portion of the structure, including what may be a road, so in my opinion, we're onto something. Whatever the situation, more studies will need to be undertaken on this recently discovered site, and we're probably still a few years off before any conclusive evidence. Unfortunately, these things take time, but I'll keep you posted. On March 29, 2014, two young Dutch students named Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froon, aged 21 and 22 respectively, traveled down to the picturesque town of Boquete 
in Panama as part of a language exchange and volunteer program. Arriving in town a week before their start date, the two women decided to spend their time taking in the local scenery. Boquete was close to the Continental Divide, where Central and South America meet in a breathtaking display of vistas and mountaintops. Their itinerary on April 1st was to trek the Pianista Trail around the Baru Volcano. It was a dense forest path, but many tourists had come and gone on the hiking trail before, and the young women wouldn't be alone. They had their host family's dog accompanying them. Later that night, the two women's host family became concerned when Chris and Lisanne did not return home. They knew instinctively that something was amiss when the family dog returned without the girls. In the days to come, a widespread search was conducted in the hopes that the Dutch tourists would be found alive. Unfortunately, it was a slow start, and the search party did not begin in earnest until almost a week after the young women vanished. Two weeks later, a woman from a local village discovered a backpack on the side of a river, which she said had appeared there overnight. That backpack belonged to Lisanne, and inside it, among other belongings, was a phone and a digital camera. Phone records show that, over the course of several days, attempts were made to connect to emergency services, all met with failure. But more curious, and highly unsettling, is what was found on the camera. What starts as a photographic chronicle of two young women enjoying a hike soon becomes a more distressing montage. The latter photos depict the forest at nighttime, with one photo over Chris's head with what looks like an injury on the side of her face. But even more disturbing are the other 87 photos from this final night, all which are absolutely black. It has been theorized that the girls may have been aiming the camera at the sky, hoping that the flash might alert helicopters out searching for them. But to this day, no concrete explanation has been given for why the girls kept taking photos of the darkness. Did they see something there that was not caught in film? Or were they hoping that the flash might ward something off, like a predator in the brush? Perhaps what is most disheartening about these desperate camera shots is the fact that Lisanne and Chris were, theoretically, very close to potential rescue. Two months after the backpack was recovered from the river, investigators would come across an even more gruesome discovery. On the same riverbank, police found a boot, and inside it was a severed foot. A little further up the path were 33 different bones strewn about the mud. DNA testing revealed these to be the remains of Chris Kremer and Lisanne Froon. Questions remain as to how they met their tragic and unfortunate end. And more importantly, what did this to them? Though these events took place miles from Ecuador, the takeaway remains. The forests and jungles of Central and South America are beautiful and ecologically diverse, but they're also extremely dangerous. We don't have to worry about ghosts and curses when there are plenty of realistic hazards, man-made and natural, that can befall anybody who is not prepared for the jungle. Much like the fairy tales of Grimm, the legend of Atahualpa's curse serves as a cautionary tale from one of mankind's oldest fears, the journey into the forest and the threat of never coming out again.
Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and don't want to be cursed, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find about it. Also, subscribe. You can connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please shoot me an email at lostreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the ease. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next week, time to go on the spookiest adventure yet with some very special guests. Hillbilly Horror Podcast joins me for our Halloween special and mid-season finale. You heard that right. We'll be taking a very short break from our standard narrative episodes in November and December. But worry not, you can expect a few episodes of our It Belongs in a Museum series throughout the rest of the year. And of course, plenty more engagement on the social medias. The adventure continues.